It is the Chicago vs. United audio podcast, your Chicago scene salvation, featuring interviews with the premier talent and tastemakers in the Chicago arts community. My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast every week at ChicagoVersUnited.com. Recording again out of the Music Garage, Chicago's professional music rehearsal space and home of the Dynasty Podcast Network. You can check them out on the web at MusicGarage.com. This week, joined by John Szymanski, John Pearson, Gwyn Fulcher, Evan Hanover, and Clifton Fry of the Neo Futurists. Ladies and gentlemen, how's it going? Great. Great. Good, good, good. Well, thank you very much for coming up. Sure. Awesome, beautiful thank night you. to thank be you. in. It is. It's a nice <laughs> night out. Yeah. Um, it's a great night to be inside. <laughs> great night to be in a cave. <laughs> in a room with no windows. Yeah, exactly. Um, in the dark. I want to talk to you guys about a production you have that's running right now. But uh, first, kind of for anyone who's listening that might not be super familiar with the Neo Futurist, maybe kind of give a little bit of backstory, you know, explain who you guys are, what you do, what the company does. The Neo Futurists have been around 22 years. We started with a show called Too Much Light mixed to Baby Go Blind, where we do uh, 30 short plays in 60 minutes. And that show sort of took off on its own initiative without advertising and just word of mouth. And uh, I started in that. So the company was based on the neo-futurism aesthetic, which is uh, we don't play characters. Uh, it's very immediate. There's a lot of randomness involved. Um, and we also have more influences other than theater. It's uh, a lot of uh, art influences like the Dada movement or Surrealists. And and then we started a primetime season about uh, 10 years ago. And that's why you have us here for the show called yes. uh, Chalk and Saltwater, The Ladder Project. Absolutely. That's the and short version. If you want the long version, you go to <laughs> neofuturist.org. Yeah, and, um, you know, and Too Much Light, is that a production that you guys in the room are in? Or are there different projects I, for different futures? Yeah, I'm t- there's an ensemble, a neofuturist ensemble. But mm-hmm. neofuturism is also uh, an art movement. So, And technically, they are not. Uh, the rest of them are not part of the ensemble. But technically, if it's a movement, they're also neo-futurists. But uh, I am the company member from the from the group. And uh, Trevor became uh, a neo-futurist who is in the show, not here tonight. Everyone in the room is involved in a, a show that's running right now. It's called Chalk and Saltwater, The Ladder Project. Talk a little bit about kind of that show and the concept behind that performance. Evan, take it away. <laughs> um, so... Uh, a bunch of us were working on a show about a year and a half ago called Crisis, a musical game show, which is exactly what it, it was, exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. And I was one of the question writers and researchers. John and I have I've been a dramaturg for John for four shows now. And one night he came up to me and said, Evan, hey, could you find me a play that was a huge failure between <laughs> 1910 and 1929? And <laughs> Very easy question. I, well, I, oh, yeah, it's very typical. One, yeah. <laughs> as, part, as part of the neo-futurist movement, one becomes used to odd requests and just runs with them. And um, so I looked around a bit, and we all thought we would come out and find like a real-life springtime for Hitler the way it was supposed to be. Right. Like, open and close in one night, like, nobody went people vilified for writing such a terrible play um but instead i started to find little traces and nuggets about this play that had ran in the mid-20s and had run for two years and lost the owner the the backer of the play um somewhere between one and one and a half million dollars what's what's the conversion for one and a half million dollars today that would be about fifteen million eight hundred twenty eight thousand two hundred forty dollars and forty one cents forty one cents we need the chalkboard (laughs) (laughs) to write this down as the podcast is going on yeah we can also do a podcast about changing currencies yeah (laughs) the original idea was to uh sort of the uh the aesthetic that i sort of took on was this in some ways i feel uh the irony in itself of making fun of failure has got 
gotten to the point where it's almost scary to me, where I, I worry. It's like in the idiocracy where I wonder if eventually we're all just going to be looking at big butts on a screen for entertainment. So yeah. I, I really want like if not this, already. <laughs> yeah, I really like this idea of deconstructing and, and looking into a failure instead of just making that snap judgment of making fun of it. So I think that's what led to. Uh, it was originally just going to be uh, staging the ladder and trying to do a good version of it. But uh, we actually find out that the history around it, the people involved, were actually more interesting than the show itself. Than the show itself, yeah. Yeah, it turned out to me it wasn't like an ironic bad show. It was just uh, fairly boring and not very well written. So it didn't have that quality that you know that, that you can make bad funny. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like an MST3K ready yeah, type. Yeah, not yeah. at all. Yeah. No. no, it was very dry. It's not ready for Tom Servo. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this show uh, just a couple days ago. I had an absolute blast. A very enjoyable experience. A really interesting. And, you know, it's obvious watching it that there's a lot of kind of on-the-fly improv material that gets interjected. But there's also, it's very apparent that there's a ton of research that mm-hmm. went into this. So kind of talk about, you know, how that happened. Like how extensive was the research and preparation for creating the show. It was odd because we started out with not enough information. We, we were worried that um, we, we wouldn't really have enough to create the stories of all these people. Uh, we found initially just a, a book about painting. That's how we found the play yeah. itself, actually. <laughs> yeah, we... Um, Someone had written a, a book about this uh, wildflower painting competition in Texas, um, which obviously has nothing to do with Broadway, that the the backer of the latter had put up the money for, uh, Edgar B. Davis, mm-hmm. uh, struck oil in Luling, Texas, and he loved the wildflowers there, so he sponsored this art competition. Um, and that was the first place where we really saw any mention of, of Edgar uh, beyond just his, his connection with with the latter when we were just finding the name of the play and the fact that it had run for two years. But that led us to a book by a gentleman named Riley Fro, who's a... a southern gentleman. A southern, a very southern, southern gentleman, uh, <laughs> who, who was from Luling, Texas, where Edgar struck oil. And uh, he wrote a book about him for the Chamber of Commerce, basically. And his book was the only source of information on Edgar. And um, through that book, we found uh, what Riley's sources were. He, he had these papers that were in the archives at Texas A&M University in Texas. So uh, John, myself, Paige, uh, John's girlfriend and my uh, wife, Christy, we went down to Texas for a week and sorted through these 40 boxes of, <laughs> of Edgar B. Davis's papers, and we found old scripts of the latter. We found, uh, like, uh, recipes and, like, uh, <laughs> quotations that he clipped out of the newspaper. We found, like... Uh, old annual reports to stockholders, but we also found a lot of personal information as well. So I'm going to interject there for a moment just to say that I had never done that. T- one of the goals was to do research beyond Wikipedia because it's been get- it's gotten very easy, and I can see it in shows that they don't do much more yes. studying. I wanted to find stuff that no one had seen before. Um, but I had no idea. I, I'm not an archivist. I didn't know that they would just throw you into a room with these boxes of decaying <laughs> documents, you hand yeah. you yeah. gloves, and so and and then turn their eyes. Uh, you know, a little while later, my my girlfriend Paige is like pulling these documents out, and they're like falling to pieces, and I'm constantly like sweeping <laughs> them into it, like a little bucket, <laughs> and hiding it under a yeah. table. <laughs> you were you were very worried about what the librarian was going to say about those little scraps. Yeah. Of I was so anxious the whole time, but no one no one cared because we were looking through documents. And I don't think that en- anyone had ever really looked at before 
it, you know, it is very apparent that there was a ton of research that went into this. And it, uh, that was something I was going to ask you is it's so interesting that you guys were so proactive in doing very old school research versus, yeah, yeah, now you can just like, you don't even have to type it. You just go on your iPhone, you like open Google and you're like Wendy's, you know, like where's the nearest Wendy? Like there's no real research being done anymore. So it is pretty interesting that you guys went to such an extreme to travel yeah. across country and yeah, and part of it boxes. to me too was to uh not give the feel of the internet but people have said that that it's kind of like going on the internet and it's sending you off in different directions i definitely wanted to do a, a show that didn't have one arcing theme that allowed the audience to choose the histories they wanted to be interested in and then pursue oh but i just want to step back because i think gwyn's sort of adventure uh yeah, that was clifton was path. discovering edgar at the same time we had a different path that gwyn took finding antoinette so i just wanted to uh, yeah the uh, person that I was researching is Antoinette Perry, who um, the, the Tony Awards were named for, and mm-hmm. most people don't know much about her. When I, when John and Evan were telling me, "Oh, you have Antoinette Perry," when you, you know, look her up, I was like, "Okay, who's she?" Like I had no idea who she <laughs> yeah. was. I thought the Tony Awards were named for a guy, and I didn't know anything about the awards. Tony Danza. That's right? why I was assuming. <laughs> right? <laughs> Tony Danza Awards. So yeah. highly started, underrated. Tony Randall. I spent money on Tony Randall. <laughs> <laughs> There is so little information about this woman for whom the Tonys are named. It was pretty astonishing how little information was out there. And Evan found um, AntoinettePerry.com, and he reached out to the person who was um, handling that website and and found out that she was related to Antoinette Perry. And she and he kind of nudged me. He was like, you should get in touch with this <laughs> woman. So uh, I did. And um, from that sprang some information that was unpublished and that no one Uh, very few people had access to outside of the family and that we were really fortunate and something I think in general about the research that we've been able to do is that there has been a personal aspect to it where we are we're corresponding with human beings Mm -hmm. who are related to or descended to or intensely studied these people we're not just getting our information off of Wikipedia or out of a uh, you know Encyclopedia Britannica we're talking to real living people who are either blood related or have spent very large amount of time studying these people and it's been such a legacy handed down to us Great responsibility, but kind of like a silent legacy, it seems. Yeah, I I, I think some of the, I mean, a lot of them had some fame in the day, and some of them, you know, like lost it, or you know, Dorothy Parker and a few from the Algonquin sort of retained their name. Um, But I think what's also interesting is I think why it wasn't just us reaching out to these people, but they were reaching out to us as soon as they found out because I think these grandkids are as just as interested in finding out more and. They're contacting us all the time, asking us what we've found. You know. <laughs> and they don't uh, want the story to die with them. You know, they want yeah, to, great. to live Yeah, on. yeah, exactly. It seems like the kids rebel, and then the grandkids sort of want to know more about their yeah. grandkids. Yeah. Every know, other grandkids generation. Yeah. Watching this show, it's very, like I said, a very apparent there's a lot of improv. Um, and it's I would imagine that it kind of changes every night. Like, right. what are some of the different elements that, are, that were more spontaneous that have worked during the performances, maybe? Uh, there's different levels of it. Um, the original idea was uh, based on this uh, a trickster god who my friend Eric who is in the show Eric Roth I quickly found out he comes from an improv background and a sketch comedy background he's in mm-hmm. a group called the other other guys and the Reavers Weavers the Reavers but uh, very talented like new yeah. sort of look at comedy great. meta comedy they do a lot of this and uh I just love this idea of imposing a trickster god on top of a, a script, um, a script that I had taken and worked myself. So <laughs> it was kind of like a fool's errand where I wanted to commit myself to something, then have someone 
in the show be able to mess with that and and screw around with it so the the latter sections within the show are definitely all in his control like he can skip through the text he can make uh he make gwyn uh, uh the one that he didn't rehearse with clifton i liked is that he could see the future so all his lines oh, yeah. had different <laughs> meanings by the fact that he could see the future yeah. uh and gwyn was made a lobster the other day or a, cl- a crab yeah, a crab, crab but that crab. was pretty damn funny yeah. <laughs> uh so they're there it's really great because the actors uh it isn't completely improvised because they have to get to the ending of each scene which i think is almost more of a challenge than just purely improvised they have to take this chaos and still push it towards yeah they have to get to the point of the last scene absolutely and also i'm just the other aspect is that uh clifton who does most of the uh outside studying of edgar edgar's sort of the what do you call like the bookends that keeps this show together Mm-hmm. And his stuff is so well studied that uh, a lot of them are just outlines and me questioning him about about Edgar. So uh, a lot of that is uh, not, I wouldn't say improvised, but are outlined, and he gets mm-hmm. to say it differently each just night. Just telling stories off the yeah. cuff, you know. Now, I know you kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, this is a production that really does kind of have a foundation in failure, you know, and I thought it was really interesting where a group of performers, writers, you know, were looking to take something that is based on failure and kind of dissect it and, and try to understand it. So, like, like on your site, it says, you know, the description of the performance opens with, what is the value of a failed endeavor? What does it mean to fail? Mm-hmm. You know, and as performers, and I, I know you've touched on this, but like what was appealing to really spending a large chunk of time digging into a theme like failure, like examining that? One of the things that confuses me about a- actu- uh, a- answering that, and uh, me and Evan have been trying to solve that question for the last couple of weeks because we've been asked to do a uh, an essay on the, uh, what's the site called? The 2AM Theater? Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been having a trouble narrowing it down because my idea was not to narrow things down it, for it to be more of the audience to choose what path they want to follow. But I think uh, I think Evan has come to some sort of... Yeah, there's this, there's this fascinating tension around failure. On the one hand, at many levels of our culture, be it business or parenting or theater, there's this belief that failure is a necessary step and an enriching step. Like, not just as a rite of passage, but through iteration you get to a more perfect whatever you're trying to do. You get to a child who appreciates things, you get to better innovations or things like that. And we hold this dear in theory, but in practice we react one of two ways with failure. Either we mock it mercilessly, which is sort of a very, like, Thomas Hobbes, I feel more superior than to you and that's why it's funny to watch you fall on a banana peel kind of thing. Or, as we were talking before about ironic failure, we actually seek out failures in order to sort of revel in them without carrying away the lesson that intellectually we have. And so there's this tension here, and the problem with writing the essay is we're failing to move on bit. Like, there's this <laughs> tension here. And I, I don't know how we resolve it, and I don't know what we... like. So we've diagnosed a problem. Chalk and salt water does not cure the problem. But I think it. I think it's something... It's really interesting to point out, this, this tension that's there that seems kind of hypocritical or kind of kind of odd that something that's so good for us we don't know what to do with right and it is so disdained there is a second way that we've and and it's the stories around it it's that failure doesn't exist in a vacuum and failure is always contextual and that's why i think we've been so successful everybody kind of knows that i'd like to think but i think that the stories that have come out and the people we've learned about have made that failure at the very least compelling Mm -hmm. which in a sense makes it a good piece of art 
I, I think. I also just like the, not contradiction, but the just the heavy idea that a huge failure like this could actually bring together people that succeeded in many other ways. Like, I think the when you see it, you know, the, the Brock Pemberton and the Antoinette Perry story, they, uh, they didn't meet during the show, but I think... And I've, I've come to believe that it was sort of a cementing of their relationship, and they ended up putting on plays that changed Broadway, that uh, Harvey, which was a famous uh, mm-hmm. award Pulitzer award-winning play they worked on together, and it, it cemented uh, women as directors. Uh, yeah, it sounds that. like it was a springboard for all of these other successes yes. that were kind of born out of this. Yeah. Failure. The show has been running since about mid-September. You've had a couple weeks of shows now. How has the reception been from people who have seen it, maybe from press, or you know, just just from anybody? I want to get John in there a little bit, the musician here. What what is your your take on that? Seems to be like the um, people that have seen it have. Um, it's um, a very polarizing show that I've noticed. Like I, I've been talking to different people about it, and most people really like it, but then they'll have something that they've come away with that they're like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that, or I don't know sure if I like it, or but. Um, Overall, it's been a really interesting. It's been an interesting experience for me to talk to these people about it because they all get something out of it, which I don't think happens in a lot of shows. I think some yeah. people can watch it and just be like, "Oh, this is it's just a show." And but people are actually really thinking about it. I think and you know talking about. I think it. the amount of work that we put into it enough is to make an audience member, even if they didn't like it, say, "All right, you put a lot of work into this, so." What are you saying? I was hoping, and all through the press, I mean, all through the time, trying to get enough entertainment value in it because uh, I, I just knew that I needed to entertain an audience in order to get them through the information that I thought was important. I thought it was a good balance, and it, it was informative, but you never you never felt like you were sitting through a film strip in class. You know what I mean? Where right, you're like, yeah. heads on the table, you're like, oh. <laughs> like, there was so much entertainment value, but there was all the backstory that was yeah. being presented that really like informed you on, on on what was being presented and it's so. long it's interesting because i think in some ways we, we we created a show that is this weird tension between it's a subject for like older theater people who want to know this information but it's done in a way i think probably because from my, a lot of our punk roots it yeah. comes it has this more youthful feeling which i it makes it harder to even promote because <laughs> I, it seems like the younger generation is enjoying it but it's made for i don't know it's, made it's for, manically old-timey <laughs> is what it is <laughs> it's like the johnny cash album where you got the nine inch nails cover and all of a sudden yeah, it's like yeah. no one knows which direction yeah. it's supposed right. to go in it's your great aunt on speed <laughs> 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 Chalk and Saltwater, the latter project, runs every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night at the Neo Futurarium. Yeah, it's like an aquarium. Yes. At the Neo Futurarium, <laughs> with the show closing down Saturday, October 22nd. And you also have a wiki that's kind of connected to the show as well, correct? Yes. The wiki to me is, to me, just like a, a whole other show. And we've put almost even more time into that than the show itself. And I'm a little disappointed in you as an audience. I'm talking to you out there who's listening to this right <laughs> you, now. You right there. That you have not corresponded with us. I, to me, it's a great opportunity for people to ask questions or to comment or even say they hated it or liked it. And there's so much information on there that we built. And like I said, we made it a wiki so that people can correspond instead of just a website where you just go there and look. So that's, I don't even know what the... It's theladder.wikispaces.com. Uh, yep. You know, what is the best place on the web for people to keep up kind of with everything, you know, you guys are doing, everything neo-futurist related, and everyone in the room, are you guys already looking at other projects and productions, or now that you're kind of like coming to the end of this, or you're like, I need a break, I need to breathe before 
launching into the next thing where we have to travel to South America to do yeah. research. I mean, the cool thing is, especially with the neo-futurists, and what I like to do is I bring together a bunch of different people, so everyone has way different projects. Like, John's always busy doing music in his band. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the band My My My, and so I'm always recording with them and writing with them, and... Um, Working on different uh, theater projects and music projects as well. Yeah, yeah. John's I, got a book that just came out. Yeah, I just had a book, yeah. a novel that came out. So what's that called? The Last Temptation of Clarence Oddbody, which is a basically an alternative universe for It's a Wonderful Life, <laughs> the old yeah. Christmas classic. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually working on a, I guess, a quasi offshoot of this show, which is uh, I've been corresponding more with Antoinette Perry's family, and they're cool with me writing a, a show about Antoinette's life because so much of it has not been told. Because again, there's so little information out there. They're fine with me writing something more about her as a person and her as a human being, which really interests me and I'm very passionate about. So I'm excited to be working on that. Well, that's awesome. Um, like I said, I saw the show. Extremely entertaining very thought-provoking you walk away with a lot and it is very apparent that you guys worked really hard in it so you should feel great i had a great time and it really did leave an impression so thank you thank you so thank much you. for coming up thank, thank, thank you very much thank you. thank you thank you for having us absolutely this has been the chicago verse united audio podcast your chicago scene salvation thanks to the cast and crew of chalk and Saltwater, the latter project for being on the show this week dynasty podcast is engineered by layla i royale with recording done at the music garage in chicago Check them out on the web at musicraj.com. You can find past episodes of the Chicago vs. United audio podcast at chicagoverseunited.com, including interviews with Martin Atkins, Ms. Maya Sinstris, and many, many more. You can follow the Dynasty Podcast Network through all social and digital media channels at the ministry of the dynasty.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Jaima Black, and Dynasty Descent.